This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So we're going to have the election podcast here in a second with Phil Stutz. Phil, how many elections were you the campaign manager of your company was involved in this midterm elections? About 107. 107 elections in the midterms. But before that, you you asked, you just asked me about FTX. Yeah. yeah. And I, is I'm, this I'm guy so fascinated by this that before we jump into the elections, I I I mean, I'm following this probably like all your listeners are following this like a soap opera, right? And like even uh you know, yesterday there was um SDNY, the attorneys are going to like come after him or they're, they're the ones that are looking to potentially drop a suit on him. But I, I'm dying to know how you, you're looking at this right now. I mean, first off, there's three levels. There's kind of like the personal drama. You know, he and his girlfriend were running these kind of fraudulent companies. His parents and I believe her parents are intimately connected to the government and the administration and, you know, they donated, they were one of the biggest political donators in history, a political campaign. $39 million for Democratic candidates in the 2022 midterm elections. Yes. And there's starting to be this drama, like what's the connection between the Ukraine and FTX? Because some of the money that might've been donated to Ukraine has ended up in FTX, supposedly. I, I don't know. I mean, this is, all this stuff is still coming to light. Like we, we don't have a flashlight revealing right. every aspect of this scandal. Like like any scandal, there's layers and layers and layers and then layers. I mean, again, his parent his parents are so politically connected. I mean, his mom runs a two hundred million dollar pack. Where does she get that money from? But all of that aside, there's also the question of what's even though when I described to you what he did, it's clearly wrong, and you would think to yourself instantly, this is illegal. Right. But because he's kind of like in this unregulated wild west, and I'm not even talking about crypto, I'm talking about he has an exchange in the Bahamas, yeah. so that's completely unregulated. He can make an argument, and I'm sure his lawyers will, that he actually, even though what he did is wrong and he's apologized for it, he didn't actually break a U.S. law. Now, I don't believe that, and I'm sure there are many U.S. laws he broke, but that's the argument they will make. But I'll give you an example of one thing or two things, but however many examples you want, you can find here. But basically, you know, he was running an exchange and through his girlfriend or sometime girlfriend, he was running a hedge fund and the hedge fund was investing in all these crappy companies. And at one point, like anything, when the value of the hedge fund goes down, they got a call from the bank and said, Hey, you need to put up some more money or else we got to shut you down. Right. And you know, it's, it's called a margin call. We all get margin calls sometimes but their margin call was for $10 billion and he simply didn't have it. So he took all the money that was basically in FTX accounts. Like, Oh, you know, you're a customer, you put money in, Oh, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. And you think that's safe. It's just being used to buy Bitcoin. No, he took all that money and moved it over to the hedge fund to deal with the bank. And he probably thought, Oh, in a week, this will blow over and then I'll move it all back. Well, that was the week that, you know, Basically, Binance right. made this allusion to, um, oh, he's running out of money, which was true. And everybody, you know, $16 billion worth of people tried to get their money out, and he had no money left. He had all the money was in the hedge fund, Alameda. So you can't take all your client money and, like, put it in your personal garbage can. You have to have the money there for customers just in case they need it. And he didn't have it. 
at that point. So he's basically went 10 billion in the hole immediately. And now he's 16 billion in the hole. So that right there is like grossly illegal. Like if a bank took all of your money, Phil, like, and, and said, Hey, we're going to put it in this, in this hedge fund. And then the hedge fund instantly goes out of business. You're screwed. The bank's out of business, but in the U S that can't happen. Banks are so heavily regulated right. and they have bailouts from the federal reserve. But people seem to think that the FCX was like a bank. No, it was just this little exchange. And I do mean little, you know, 16 billion versus $140 trillion in stock market-based right. exchanges. Um, so, so he had this little exchange, but it was in the Bahamas. He's not, it's not even in the U S so it's unclear what's legal and illegal in the Bahamas It's a very unregulated. It's, it's the wild west. So that's one thing he did that's wrong. Here's another thing. Imagine you're a hedge fund, Alameda that's associated with FTX. You invest the money. I invest in Phil's company and I tell you, Phil, you need to put all the money in FTX. Uh, that's where you have to keep the money that I invest in you. Now FTX takes that money and invests it back in Alameda so they can invest in more private companies. Right. But weren't they also creating their own coin? Well, that's the other thing. Like then they, they were, were making their own coin. scam coins because they were just creating them, correct? Right. This coin had no real value. Now, some coins do have real value backing them. Like you could say Ethereum, people need to use Ethereum to make other projects. So there's a, a supply and demand, there's value for it. There was no, they made this coin FTT. They propped up the value of FTT put it in but Alameda. They bought it, right? They bought their own right. coin to prop up the value, correct? They bought their own coin right. to prop up the value, and then they use that as collateral to borrow real money from the bank. And so that also has a Ponzi scheme like flavor to it. But again, it's like, what is the law right. that was broken? I don't. A lawyer would know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's definitely unethical yeah. and wrong, yeah. and he definitely knew at the time he was doing it that it was wrong, but he probably never thought he would get caught because there's this feeling that, oh, it's just going to keep going up. And again, this is very similar. And we have a podcast about this coming up in a few days. We compare this to Enron step-by-step. Step. It's the, everything Enron did, FTX did. Everything Madoff did, FTX did. Everything Lehman Brothers did, WorldCom, Michael Milken. All of these kind of frauds and weird financial things from the past have the same similar pattern, including FTX. Yeah, the other one, I, have you ever listened to the All In podcast? I've been on it. I've been on Jason Calcanis' show a bunch of times, and he's been on, on this podcast a bunch of times. Yeah, so they did a show, uh, I don't know when when this ep our episode's coming out, but they did a show in, uh, about Friday, the maybe November 11th, and it's utterly fascinating because they break it down about everything you're saying. But that was a, you know, that was a while ago. Things have changed, like, Sam's now done uh, interviews via Twitter. Like, it's just crazy. Anyway, I, I've been, I think, I think you've been thinking you know, about it. You know, it's very interesting because here's where it's really like Enron. Like, the Enron executives, they, some of them actually decided to go to court. They had a plea bargain hey, get one year in jail and you're done. But one executive I remember specifically, like the deputy CFO or whatever, he decided to go to court. He didn't think he knew that what they did was wrong, but they didn't, he didn't think it was illegal. Mm. And he went to court and got 20 years in jail, like, cause he lost because it's hard to say when you're, when you're in a new area of financial innovation, financial innovation is in general good for the world. Like, you know, there junk bonds were, there was a lot of frauds in the eighties, but junk bonds now are a regular part of financial innovation. That's how companies get funded. That's how innovation happens is with this new funding, just like, you know, derivatives on housing. 
it was a fraudulent when Lehman Brothers was using them, but now it's common things for, for mutual funds and hedge funds and banks. Hedge funds did not blow up just because Madoff blew up. Right. So just like this has nothing really to do with crypto, but this crypto exchange did a lot of illegal or what seems like illegal things, but it's because it's so unregulated, it's just, we know it's wrong. We know what he did was, was criminal, but in, in criminal in like an adjective sense and not in a legal sense. We don't know. No lawyer knows, which is why lawyers are defending him. Otherwise, you know, nobody would want to defend him if he, or say, he, I mean, he's definitely going to go to jail, but maybe he doesn't get extradited if it's not a, 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 you know, if it's not a, if he didn't break a law in the Bahamas, he's not going to get extradited is the, is the issue. Or maybe he disappears. Although I've actually done some work on that and it's very hard these days, of course, to, to disappear. It's not even like, you know, back in the Enron WorldCom days, yeah. I remember having a discussion with Jim Cramer. One of those executives was trying to disappear and they caught him. Damn. I don't know which one. Huh. And they couldn't get away with it. But and they all went to jail. I mean, Bernie yeah. Evers is in jail. All the Enron people yeah. are in jail except for Ken Lay, who who died. fortunately for him, yeah. he died. So uh Jeff Skilling tried to commit suicide, but ended up I think he's still in jail. No, I, don't know. I think he ended up getting out, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, he was in for a long time. Oh. Um, the all in podcast is David Sachs, Calcanus, I think Chalmuth. It's like four or five of those guys. And, okay. And you know, what's interesting is David Sachs is he's, first of all, he was originally with PayPal yeah. and he's one of the biggest investors now in the new Twitter. Along right. With, he's helping Elon. Elon with Twitter right now. So it, it, these guys have some interesting and Chalmuth talks about how, uh, SBF came to pitch him and what happened, uh, with FDX. So that. That's another one that's kind of interesting in that in that interview. Okay, sorry, I just uh, well, but one one prediction I will make outside of FTX, but related to this, is that Twitter is going to be the ultimate cryptocurrency digital payments platform. Hmm. That's Elon's ultimate goal for Twitter. That's why Twitter is probably when he brings it public again, it's going to be worth 150 to 200 billion dollars. He bought it for 44, and he's going to take Twitter and and turn it into the dream of what FTX would have loved to have been, but wasn't. And that's going to be a huge catalyst where finally people who understand Twitter are going to be able to use cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies, honestly, are too complicated for grandma and grandpa to use. Well, oh, I'm going to use some weird DeFi exchange right. called Pancake Swap, and I have to keep track of wallets and uh, private keys and passwords. And I'm 97 years old. How am I going to do this? Like. It, there needs to be a clean interface. Twitter is going to become that interface because of people like, where did David Sachs, Elon Musk, and all these people come from? PayPal, right. digital payments. Yep. So that, And someone needs to make the interface, the front end to crypto easier as opposed to this Wild West mm -hmm. FTX stuff. Then this FTX stuff won't happen. But Phil Stutz, campaign manager extraordinaire, you were involved in around 100 races in, in the midterms. You've been working on campaigns since 2004. Oh, no, no, 1996. 1996. But, uh, that was Clinton versus Dole. Yeah. Wait, who who was Dole's vice presidential candidate Jack then? Kemp. I can't actually Jack remember. Kemp. Oh, Jack Kemp, yeah. Uh, all right, Phil. This election, and by the way, this is not about political issues. For the purposes of this podcast, I could, I could not care less about the political issues. I am a betting man. And I was using predicted.org to bet. I 
was do I should have taken my bets off yeah. or should have would have. You made a lot of money before the election. You lost the money after the election, correct? Yeah, the morning of the right. election, I was up 30%. Right. I could have just had a clean slate yeah. instead of you it, got greedy. it was speculation after that. And so and and everything was close. There was no reason to stay in it after on close elections when I was already up. But obviously the red wave did not happen as many people expected. Yeah. They didn't overwhelmingly, they took over the house. We just learned finally. Yeah. They didn't overwhelmingly take it over and they did not take over the Senate. And so many elections were closer than thought on the Democrat side. I don't know what surprises they were. I will say I'm, I'm disappointed. Tim Ryan did not win in Ohio. That was my, you got crushed. anybody who's ever been on this podcast, I support for their, their office when they run. So Democrat or Republican. And, uh, or libertarian, you know, so what happened? No red wave. Yeah. Let's start with that. Um, I, it was more like a, a pink tide. How about that? Um, I don't even know if it was a pink tide. Well, no, I mean, they lost James, you're reading every story right now, but the fact is, is that now the Republicans have control of the house. Joe Biden is not going to get one thing passed in the next two years. It's impossible to have that done. So Everybody in the Republican world, including me, thought we would pick up between 20 and 40 seats. We're going to end up picking up about eight, right? That's not what people thought, but that's also an expectation game. The bottom line is, did you get the majority of the House, right? You didn't get the majority of the Senate, and you lost some key um, governor's races. And Democrat incumbents pretty much won every single race in the Senate. Uh, across the board and, and governor races across the board. These are, th this was, um, yeah, let me give you another example of this. In 2020, right, uh, it was predicted that Republicans would lose their, you know, lose like crazy in the Senate and in the House and the, the presidential race would, you know, it was a 50-50 toss up. That ended up happening. Republicans actually, they were supposed to lose like 25 seats according to all the prediction markets. They ended up winning about eight seats. I can't remember the exact number, but around that. That was unprecedented. And we all patted each other on the back and thought, my gosh, that, that, that is, we stopped that tide. We did that on the Republican side, right? And then we realized, well, the Democrats are still in power. They control the committees. They control the investigations. They control everything. It doesn't matter if it's a one-vote majority or a 40-vote majority. They're still in the, the charge. And then we've had to spend two years dealing with that on the Republican side. So what I'm saying is totally agree. It was not the expectation. I'm do not, I'm never going to sugarcoat anything, but the fact that the Republicans did get the majority in the house is a big deal. It is. And the majority, uh, the, for the first time, like in, oh my God, I, decades, the Republicans won the popular vote in the midterms that that never happens. So, Oh, is that true? So, yeah. so like, well, that means out of all the votes cast for Congress, if you add them all up, Congress and Senate, if you add them all up, there were more Republican voters yeah. than Democrat right now. Voters. It's around five million, but uh, California is still counting. Here we are, like ten, twelve days after the election, so that that number will probably come down a little bit. But the bottom line is they did. So there, there was some. Uh, it, let me just say this. Let me back up. It was the most. Uh, it was the weirdest election I've ever been a part of in, you know, 26 years of elections. I've never seen. Why is that? I mean, I can give you, I'll, I'll straight up give you all the reasons the Democrats won, but Republicans gained something like 19 points with Hispanics. 
19 points with Hispanics. They gained five points nationally with African-Americans. So they're like this, there's a realignment that's happening. And this is what I think is ultimately the outcome. You're seeing uh, purple states, what purple states are states that can go Republican or Democrat. And they are more, they are either going more red or they're going more blue. And you're seeing, you know, Lee Zeldin ran for governor. We talked about this in the last podcast. Lee Zeldin ran for governor of New York, right? And he lost by about 300,000 votes, which sounds like a lot. But if you think about the state of New York, that's actually not that many. Yeah. And for, for New York, by the way, just to, to underscore, right. I mean, they had a Republican governor with George Pataki in the late 90s, but they've, they've, they've been 100% yeah. Democrat. Like the last Republican, uh, the last governor election, Andrew Cuomo won by like, you know, 90% to nothing. Yeah. So if you, you know, but there's this realignment where so many people left New York, you, you should write an article about that. But, uh, that so many people left New York that it's, no thanks. It, it is just a like so many people left California that the only people that are left or a lot of the people that are left, right. From a, from a statewide, not a district house district wide. Um, it's just becoming more blue. And even in an election, this, uh, if you would have taken the same congressional map from 2018, so the census creates a new congressional map across the country, right? Some states may lose a congressional seat, some may gain based on population. There are new lines drawn. It's all been done in the last two years. If you take the map that was in place in 2018, Republicans would have won 20 seats on election day this year. That's well, crazy, right? They ended up winning, what, I don't know, six, eight seats. But my point is, is that it, before, if you would have just taken the same congressional map from four years ago, Republicans would have picked up 20 seats. So there's a, there's a lot of reasons why that is. Um, each state does their own census tracking and then redraws their own lines and all this stuff. But my point is, is that it's going to be harder for Republicans going forward to make, I think in like 2010, 2014, Republicans picked up massive, like, I think even in can't remember if it was 10 or 14, but they picked up some like 65 seats, right? That's insane. Like, but the way the congressional lines are drawn now, I don't think that's that kind of wave is happening again. And in a way, that's probably why we missed it a little bit. But on the on the Congress side, because we thought this was going to be a 25 to 35 seat win uh, or a shift with the Republicans. But the way the congressional lines are drawn now, it's just not possible. And and in the Senate, of course, that's not it, that's state by state. There's no congressional lines drawn. Exactly. I mean, there's no senatorial lines drawn. So let's start with the Senate because the Senate was the biggest surprise. Like it, it, it there was not okay. Maybe there was actually there was really not a, even a pink tide. The Senate sort of remained the same, just maybe with different actors. No, in it, it, the Republicans right now. If Herschel Walker wins the runoff in Georgia, Republicans lost one seat. Yeah. Okay, there's so many questions. The first one is, when we spoke last, you said the issues in order were, if I remember correctly, you know, inflation slash economy, crime, yeah. immigration, yeah. abortion. Yes. Is, was that order correct? Like, did, that, did people vote on the, on the basis of those issues? So 
Great question. Here is what happened in the data that we've been looking at. These were their number one issues, but it wasn't their deciding issue going into the polls. Their deciding issues came down to the fact that Trump came into a lot of these states at the last minute, and it brought out a lot of angst in the voters that went, we like Trump policies, but this is a scary world we're in right now with pandemics and wars and inflation and recession. And they want something that's totally stable and serious. And in the end, they went, they reverted back to what they know versus making another upheaval of change. And that had two, there were two reasons why. One was if you look at the data, the Trump endorsed candidates that were talking about election denialism tended to perform about five points below the Republican candidates that just ran on their own issues. Five points. That would have swung the Senate because you would have won, you could have won potentially Pennsylvania. That was about a 4.7 margin. You definitely would have won Nevada with Adam Laxalt. You, you would have uh, had a chance with Blake Masters would have been a lot closer. Um, the, the Herschel Walker race. So the Republicans would have had the Senate on that. The abortion issue, which I told you, I didn't feel like it was such a big issue, these inflation issues, it just, uh, it amplified that people don't want a lot of crazy change. They're fine with the abortion issue right now. On average, the majority of people, they don't want, you know, let me give you an example of where the abortion issue really played, the state of Michigan. So they had a, a ballot measure, um, uh, you know, on, on a, you know, like an abortion ballot measure, right? That eliminating abortion, right? The, not only did Tudor Dixon lose to Gretchen Whitmer, the governor's race, which we thought was going to be super close. It ended up being a blowout. But the state house and the state Senate went to the majority of Democrats for the first time since 1982. Wow. Why? That's a big why. Uh, because yeah. you had the abortion issue on the ballot, on the ballot. And so, you know, these states also felt this. So, again, if you look at independents and about 13% of Republicans out of, you know, 100%, they were like, we like Trump policies. We like the Republican policies. We want them to come in and fix inflation. But there's just too much uncertainty in the world right now. And I believe that Trump went into 16 competitive races in the last couple of weeks and, uh, or maybe he went to 18 and 16 of those candidates lost. It says, so. Oh my gosh. So, and we'll talk about that in the context of, of Trump's announcement for presidency, yeah. but Trump won two of 16 competitive races in which he did rallies in, in the last few weeks. So, uh, and there, there's more because you called out something in our first podcast back in September, and I dismissed it, and I was wrong. And that was the money that was spent by Democrats versus Republicans, and it mattered. Let me give you, and you brought this specific one up, and I look back on it now, and I went, man, James was totally right there. In Arizona, in the U.S. Senate race between Mark Kelly and Blake Masters, Mark Kelly raised $81.8 million, just his candidates, just his, just his campaign. Do you know how much Blake Masters raised? 
I think it was something like 10, 15 million. 12.1 million dollars. 12.1. So we're talking almost 70 million dollars more spent against you. He he got crushed for this. I mean, I'm telling you. And so when you wrap those things together, candidate the uh, the voters did care about inflation. It, they are. They all these issues I told you about. It Listen, we've never seen there's a it's called the the trifecta. It's like unpopular president, bad economy, and oh, it's just one other. I I, I forgot it last time too, but it's like inflation or war. Huh? Or what was that? War. Uh, no, it wasn't war, but it's one other. But if you've measured these three factors in every election in the last 40 years, it is a monumental wave for the the party that's that doesn't reflect those three factors, right? And it didn't happen. Well, one more, one more thing yeah. on the money thing. So this is the, the disparity between Mark Kelly and Blake Mathers was bigger than pretty much every other Senate case, uh, race in the country. But the pattern was the same. Republican candidates got way, way outraised and spent on. Now, what I argued back in September was, yes, but we're making up for it because we're raising a lot of money on the super PAC side. But one thing in my brain fog of, of campaigns that I just totally forgot about was if you spend, if you go to a TV station or you're going to buy ads uh, in the digital space with like Roku or Hulu, right? There is a candidate rate and then there is a super PAC rate. And the super PAC rate is almost eight to 10 times more expensive than the candidate rate. So while Blake Masters may have had $30 million spent on his behalf by a super PAC. The efficiency of Mark Kelly's 81 million plus all the super PAC money he had versus Blake Masters is 12 million was, I mean, it's outrageous how the difference in that, right? And so therefore, when you see that across the board, I'm, and this is, this is just a fact, this is not like excuses. Like this also contributed. They got the Republicans are to blame. The Republicans not raising enough money is to blame. Like it is, it was. Now, a, what's their issue with raising money? Like, are do they not have their fundraising machine in place, or you know, why were the Democrats able to raise so much more money than Republicans? Well, they do a better job of fundraising for one, and the other is that they have this thing called Act Blue. Are you familiar with Act Blue? No. So if you see any kind of ad right now for a Democrat that's trying to raise money, you probably are seeing Ralph Warnock stuff in Georgia. Um, and it, let's say it's Barack Obama saying, hey, this is Barack Obama. You know, click here, help Warnock. You, it's one database that every Democratic candidate in the world or in America, right, uh, opts into. And people in California or Alaska can see Barack Obama and go, hey, I want to help Barack Obama or I want to help Ralph Warnock, and a portion of that goes through. I mean, it, they have one central database that allows them to collect money from millions of people in small donor day donations. Now, they created this database back in like 2012, 2014, and it is, that is how they operate. It is the foundation of their entire party. The Republicans were slow on the take. So we have one, it's called Win Red. But it really didn't come out until 2020 or maybe even 2018. And it's still in its infancy stage. And Republican donors aren't as familiar with the fact that they can make small dollar donations and they get 
spread out among all the candidates in different ways that, that it's just not institutionalized like the Democrats have done. And kudos to them because they've, uh, they've built a machine. So, so let's look at like two races that were side by side and one was a blowout red. The other ended up being not a blowout, but it ended up being blue Pennsylvania and Ohio. J.D. Vance, you know, author of the, the great book, Hillbilly Elegy, which became a movie. You know, he was the Republican candidate versus Tim Ryan, who had previously run for president. He had run for speaker against Nancy Pelosi all around. He'd written a book on meditation, which is odd for a, uh, someone in the Congress. And then on Pennsylvania, you had Dr. Oz, celebrity TV guy who's been on this podcast um, and then versus Fetterman. Why were those races Side by side, Pennsylvania borders Ohio. Why were they so different? Money. I mean, so Tim Ryan, who is a much more establishment figure, he raised less money than Fetterman, who essentially, yes. you know. Had- uh, well, a couple of things. I'm, I'm happy to watch this. First of all, J.D. Vance actually was more competitive on the money side with super PACs coming in. They, they got, J.D. Vance got a ton more money than Blake Masters. So in the end, he had the money to go make the argument. Plus, Ohio is a much... Re- this is one of those purple states that has turned red, right? It's, uh, it is just... It is increasingly turning red. It was red for Trump twice, and it is increasingly going red. And, and one good... You know, we can talk about the... The Democrats have a lot of uh, defense races in 2024. One of them is Sherrod Brown, who is the U.S. Senator, Democratic Senator from Ohio, and that is a potential huge pickup for Republicans in 2024. Uh, Pennsylvania is purple and trending blue. And what we're seeing in the data is that half of the votes for Fetterman had already come before his debate, his infamous debate. Ah, because when when did they open up the polls in Pennsylvania? Like two I, I weeks don't know before? the exact dates, but uh, they have you know they have a very open early you know vote by mail, all these kind of things, and it's instant. That's another thing that we haven't talked about. The, the early voting for Democrat is an institutionalized way to vote for Democrats, and it used to be uh, that Republicans were very organized in absentee voting, early voting as well, but. In 2020, Donald Trump told Republicans, don't trust that. You need to vote on Election Day. And that's been a huge, huge impediment on Republicans because we're now like, this thing has to get solved. We have to get into the early vote game and we have to convince Republican voters to bank those votes early and not rely on Election Day where they may be distracted and not vote. You know, it's a very interesting thing because like when I was younger, absentee voting was, was exactly that absentee voting. So, so ballots were sent to military people who were overseas or were sent to other people who specifically requested one because, Hey, I'm not going to be in the state on election day. Mm-hmm. Now absentee ballots are sent to everybody in the state. And like you say, the people yeah. are encouraged to vote early and one side, the Democrats have kind of used this as a strategy, whereas the Republicans have ignored it. So this and sort they've of ignored it in some places. In the state of Florida, we have early voting and it's not an issue, you know, but we also have, you have to show your ID, um, you know, when you show up at the polls and they, they got rid of this, uh, ballot harvesting and, 
um, you know, drop box locations. Nope. You just show up at the location and, and you early vote and you show your ID. What's the issue with ballot harvesting? Do you know what ballot harvesting is? It's, I, I, I'm assuming it's what you just said, but I've heard the term. Yeah, no, it's basically really a party representative. So somebody from the Democratic Party runs around and collects people's ballots that aren't related to them or whatever, right? So there are a lot of concerns on the Republican side that there's some nefarious stuff going on on that, that you've got, you've got party operatives running around collecting hundreds and thousands of ballots and then dumping them at a site. Um, and, and that, that, you know, without showing ID, those, those votes, those votes have not had an, you know, ID verification or anything that that's what, where Republicans are the most concerned. Now Republicans are like, oh, okay, well, if that's the game and we can't get the laws changed, then we're going to play the game too. And it doesn't mean cheating. It just means they're going to start implementing sort of ballot harvesting campaigns. And, um, and so we're going to see where that goes, but that's where the problem is. So in Florida, there is no ballot harvesting. There are no drop boxes. Well, why it's, it's, it's illegal or yeah, what's the story uh, uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, after 2020 sort of cleaned up and said, had a pretty, you know, strict, this is how we're going to do it. You can vote early. I, I voted early in Florida. I voted, you know, 10 days early and, um, and here, you know, like in Florida, you know, like. It it was the biggest. Well, DeSantis was when was the biggest blowout by a Republican statewide elected office holder in the history of the state's elections. Right, he won by nineteen wow, so points. It's insane. He won Miami Dade, which Hillary Clinton won by something like forty points in two thousand sixteen, and he and DeSantis won the county, which is you know one of the biggest counties. Yeah, that's odd because that's a very blue, very blue county. Right. It's the only blue county, I think. He, in, he in won Florida. Puerto Ricans. He won Cubans. He he split Mexico or non Puerto Rican, non Cuban vote. He got fifty percent. Um, the the numbers that came out of Florida from in that that perspective, I, I have it. Fifty eight percent of Hispanics voted for him. Fifty percent of non Cuban, non Puerto Rican. Fifty six percent of Puerto Ricans voted for him. Seventy percent of Hispanics in Miami Dade voted for him. So why do you think that is? Because that's the, typically not not counting Cuban. Cubans historically have been yep. Republican because right. they don't like Castro and, you know, they don't like the fact that Barack Obama initiated relations with Cuba. But like, what's the deal with kind of Mexicans in Miami? They hated the immigration laws of, of Trump uh, like that. They, they're, they're, they were permanently hating on that. So what, how did he get 70% of the votes of, of those people? So this goes into probably the ultimate reason of the elections. Brand matters. Brand matters. They like, they like DeSantis. If you look at the every candidate that ran on sort of uh, disputing the 2020 elections, every one of those candidates lost. And again, on average, they finished 5% below, on average, 5% below Republicans that ran on issues. And that didn't Dr. Oz run on issues in Pennsylvania? Yeah, but he was at the Trump rally the day, you know, two days before the election. Carrie Lake, who I thought was a shoe-in, you know, did a rally with Steve Bannon the last three days of the election. So, wow. I mean, again, she has the right to endorse and have any supporters she wants, but you already in, in Arizona, Carrie Lake, she already had that vote. 
she already had that vote. Like what? Like go, you gotta, you gotta win the new votes, the votes that you need to get you over the top. And so the brand problem in the party, you know, we're going to, we're seeing a, a shift in our part in, in the Republican party right now, because you're about to see, you know, leading into 2024, what direction that party wants to go. So it's interesting what we're kind of saying and what you're kind of saying is that issues of all the factors in, in an election, issues really aren't the most important thing because it doesn't matter what the important issues are to people. At some point deep down, they're either scared or not scared. And if they're scared, they're going to vote against, you know, what they're afraid of. And if they're not scared, they're probably going to, you know, maybe then the issues are more important. But in general right now, people are scared. And, they, and one of the things they're scared of is Trump's rhetoric might be, they might like his policies, but his rhetoric was so polarizing. They just don't want to return to that. And that, cause that polarization is maybe linked to all the troubles we're having now. They don't know. They're just scared of it. And there, there there's so much chaos. They just want less chaos. How about that? And then the other thing is there's so much kind chaos of in the war. world. I mean, whether it's war, right. inflation, recession, um, you know, pandemic, all that stuff. That like, it's like, can we just have something that's just not chaos that, that we want, even if like, I don't agree with the Democrat policies of inflation or spending or pandemic or war at the same time, the overriding concern came in as we just want a little stability. And this is, you know, ultimately this is probably the argument that Biden made in 2020, right? I'm going to restore sort of that, I don't know, stability. That was his argument. Whether you think right. he did I mean, or not, of- I don't know. But I think in comparison to, to what they saw leading into the last days of that election, I, I think the whole election, you know, it was interesting. You asked me a very important question when we talked right before, about a week before the election. You said, what would I be most concerned about? And I said, well... What I'd be most concerned about is the fact that all these polls came out saying the Republicans were going to crush Democrats, but it came out 19 days before the election, not three days before the election. Because when you have 19 days before the election, you've got 19 days for things to change. You remember this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if Trump had just stayed home those 19 days, do you think things would have been different? I, I think it could have factored in for sure, for sure. But the fact is that 19 days gave Democrats more opportunity to bank early votes and to get their operation solidified and to win the messaging war in the last few weeks. And what we saw, so like after we talked for that last seven days of the, before the election, the one thing I kept seeing was all these, num- all these polling numbers we were looking at internally that you know, I think Carrie Lake had been consistent, and let's just take her for example in Arizona. She'd been consistently winning by about five or six or seven points. And then all of a sudden in the last two or three days, like three polls came out and she was up one. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense at all. Like, and I even remember you and I talked also that the New York Times and Siena College had a poll out. What was the outlier poll of the whole election, right? They were saying Democrats are going to hold the Senate. They were saying that, you know, certain Democrats were up big, that we had Republicans either tied or, or up a little bit. 
maybe I think we talked about this, but I said they're the one outlier. And if they're if they're right, they're gonna be like, and they were, they were the right poll. They were. They saw a trend changing and happening. Um, one of the things that we that I relied on and looked at a lot of data with was the uh, Trafalgar group. You remember uh, what we talked about yeah. them a little bit? Uh, and we talked about this submerged Trump voter this cycle. Well, that, that actually, that, that wasn't even there. It, it didn't even exist. They were totally wrong. Um, but they had been completely right and the only people right for two elections. And so I think they doubled down on this hidden Trump voter. Well, Trump wasn't on the ballot for Republicans, but he was on the ballot for Democrats and independent. That's so interesting. And independent. And so, 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 so it turns out basically the Trump issue trumped all the other issues, not to be Plenty about that, but now, and then the I, other I issue. I, 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 the only thing I'd say is, I, no, I'd say it was a factor. I think candidate quality was probably number one. I think uh, less, you know, chaos in a world of chaos was a factor. I think abortion was a factor, and ultimately, when you add all those things and put a bow on it, they overrode inflation, unpopularity of Biden, and all of those other things. Was candidate quality an issue? Because, and I'm just speaking in terms of of resume and and again, not the issues itself, but like Tim Ryan to me in Ohio was probably more qualified to serve his state than JD Vance. But in Pennsylvania, you know, the opposite might be true, mm -hmm. which is Mehmet Oz might have been more qualified than Fetterman to be in the Senate, and you know, probably Warnock is is certainly more qualified than Walker to be in the Senate. But that's still going to be a runoff. That was really close. So we're seeing three different outcomes based on quality. And uh, I, I, I don't know if quality was an issue. And Blake Masters is Again, super, James, super qualified you're, you're as well. looking at it from an apples to apples comparison. It's not. Ohio is a much more Republican state than Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a blue state. Ohio is a red state. Georgia right. is a purple state. You have to factor that in. It's not the same to compare them. There's no comparison yeah. to those states. And the fact is, is that J.D. Vance is a really good candidate. Now, he also embraced Trump. Don't well, get me wrong. I like J.D. Vance, that, too, as an author. He is one of the few that embraced Trump, and he won, right? So that should tell you about how red Ohio has gone. Um, and in Pennsylvania, the, you know, um, uh, Mastriano was running for governor. He got destroyed, destroyed in the governor's race, right? So it's a blue state. Yeah. And so you have to run differently uh, in each of these states. And it also seemed like what you're saying is the big issues were this ballot, har these sort of under the surface issues, which is ballot harvesting, whether a campaign did that or not, and these new techniques for raising money. And I feel like the Democrats have always been a little bit ahead of Republicans since the nineties, the Democrat Repu Republicans were better in the nineties. I think at raising money. Now the Democrats with, with, you know, Obama put together a really good machine starting in 2008 and, and the Democrats have become a, a better money raising machine than the Republicans. Yeah. And, and this has become major issues in the, in the past couple of elections. 
And so, so, but you're, you're also saying that, look, the Republicans won the house, which still means a gridlock, uh, con a, gr a gridlock government, which is really what kind of, uh, I think many people were voting for gridlock right. because it, it brings general the economy tends to, right. Yeah. And, and I just want to say one issue economically that's very important, which is that when you, ha when you don't have government gridlock and the government ends up having, having control over a lot of programs and spending a lot of money, then the government is paying more people money and the taxes it generates is from money they're paying. This is why you need a private, a large private economy. You don't want the government to be the biggest part of the economy because then the tax revenues they get are just their own money recycled. You can't pay people and then have it come back as taxes to the government and, and just keep repeating that. You need money outside the government in order to really make new money from taxes. And that's what a lot of uh, people forget. So gridlock is good because it means yeah. less government programs will be started and, and, and so on. So well, let me, let me of, give you the greatest example of what, what I'm talking about with a, what I'd call a purple state, a 50, 50 state. All right. We got Arizona, mm -hmm. right? Now we talked about, uh, Carrie Lake. We talked about Blake masters. Okay. But think about this in Arizona, there are nine congressional seats in Arizona, right? Three are strong Democrat leaning, three are strong Republican leaning, and then three are toss ups. Okay. In Arizona, the three toss ups went to Republicans. The three Republican seats stayed Republican. The three Democratic seats stayed Democrat. So you have a, uh, you basically have a six to three majority in, in the House where it could, you know, it, there's three seats that could go either way. The GOP won the treasurer's race in the state treasurer's race. Okay. That candidate was not uh, talking about the elections of 2020. The attorney general is, it's literally, it's like, Right now, it hadn't been decided. It's like 500 votes. He's, he's down 500 votes. Um, they, they could possibly win the, sec uh, the Secretary of Education, which, again, not, not running on 2020. So if you look at those, and all of these candidates finished about, on average, about five points higher than, you know, uh, uh, Blake Masters. Now, Carrie Lake basically tied. I mean, she's, you know, barely down. She lost, right? But even she finished with less votes than the treasurer running in the state. Now the treasurer is a well-known woman. Um, uh, I think her last name is Yee, but uh, she's a well-known woman and she's run statewide before and people know who she is. And so this is a fascinating thing. Like when you want to know, like that's more of an apples and apples comparison. Okay. Because you're looking at a state that there, a lot of Republicans won and a lot of Republicans lost. So what was the difference? And, and therein lies where I'm talking about. So basically the ones that were talking about a, a, a 2020 thing, the election, election denialism, well, hold on, they hold lost. On, hold on. I'm going to push back on election denialism because you've got literally about a thousand different Democrats over the last 20 years who have said that certain Republican presidents weren't legitimate and that elections were going to be stolen and we don't call them deniers. Either. Right. So that, these that's, true. That, that's a really good point. That, these are people that disputed the 2020 elections. You can, you can yell at me and say, oh, that's BS. I don't care. But I mean, there are plenty of Democrats that have done the exact same thing. So these are people that disputed the 2020 elections, whether I agree with that or not, which I don't, I don't think, uh, I, I think there was manipulation by the media 
I think there was manipulation by the social media platforms in 2020, but I do not think there was mass election fraud on election day. And so right. my point ultimately is the people that ran on that are the ones in Arizona who are not winning right now. It's so it's so interesting. So, okay, let's look at the uh, this congressional race that's still not decided. Lauren Boebert. Yeah. Now, she was an extreme January 6th. You know, she, she tweeted out like this is 1776 all over again, you know, on January right. 6th. And at first it was reported that she lost. Now I think she's winning. It's not yeah, decided she's up yet. about 500 votes. And they're, they're actually counting disputed ballots right now. What, what was her story? Like she was an extreme, like no. kind of crazy, you know, January 6th person. And, uh, what's, you would think someone like that would, would, uh, well, is and, so and polarizing. It's a, I believe it's an either Trump, Trump won the district by either eight or 13 points. Right. So, so people are really turning against just campaign people who just campaign on that issue are a little crazy. Here's the thing. The voters right now want stability and how we sort of get our economy back on track, how we put all these social issues behind us, how we, you know, resolve the financial issues and the pandemic issues and all this stuff. They just want to look forward. And when a candidate, you know, I, I'll give you another example. I worked for John Thune, who ran for the U S Senate uh, in 2002. South Dakota, South Dakota. And he lost by about 329 votes out of about 330,000 cast 329 oh. votes to the incumbent U S Senator named Tim Johnson. I was on that race. I lived in South Dakota for a year. It was one of the, like, imagine spending a year of your life, no days off. I'm talking no days off and then losing by 329 votes out of 330,000 cast. Did you cry? Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably the the one I, the most PTSD I have, right? But the one, you know, we don't think about the wins; we think about the losses more than we think about the wins. And this one is the one I'll I'll never forget. When it was over, all the Republican lawyers flew into South Dakota. We were all sitting around. How are we going to do a recount? How are we going to dispute this? What are we going to do? We 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 knew that there had been a little bit of election fraud in some counties um, that that were doing ballot harvesting before it was legal. And hey, we had a case to make. And John Thune came in and he sat down and he said, I don't want to fight this. I'm going to concede because this is what's best for the country. And frankly, I don't know if I could win even if I fought, you know, this. And so before he even got to that recount or that fight, he literally came out, congratulated Senator Johnson on a win and said he'd fight another day. Two years later, John Thune decides to challenge the incumbent Senator Tom Daschle, who's the Senate Majority Leader in the United States Senate, and he wins, and he wins by 10,000 votes. And he did it because he preserved his reputation because the voters just didn't want to get bogged down in some, the election was stolen thing. I'm telling you, I've lived through this. Voters are ready to move on. Whether it happened or whether it didn't, they're ready to move on and they want to know how you're going to solve the future problems and the current problems, not dispute past arguments. And that's what I mean, you know, if, it, it, it's very interesting because history repeats itself, right? Or what's the saying? History doesn't repeat it, but it rhymes. 1960, John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon, very close race. Most of Nixon's advisors were saying, hey, John F. Kennedy, there, there's at least some suspicious yeah. votes in Chicago, which was a turning state, right. Illinois. 
Um, uh, and everybody was advising Nixon to contest it. And behind the scenes, he did have lawyers mobilized and he was contesting it, but he did concede on election night. And he was, he was I don't want to say a gracious loser, but he admitted he lost. And then, of course, two years later, he lost for governor of California. He, he admitted he lost. And then, you know, 1968, as long, it's a very good lesson. If you stay above the mud, you always have a chance to come back. Right. If you stay in the mud, you'll always look like mud. So if you're just looking at the 2024 polling right now, every, the flip, uh, the script has completely flipped. And every poll that has come out since election day, and just a couple, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, every single race, Ron DeSantis is now beating Donald Trump. Every single one. Every single one. And all these state, I'm going to state specific ones, not national. So why? Because they go, hey, we want to be with the winner. We want to be with the person that gets us there, right? Um, that's what's happening. Now, don't count Trump out. I mean, my God, the guy, every time you count him out, he comes back, right? And so what what that looks like, and again, there's just a realignment going on in the Republican Party, and unfortunately, Republicans are going to have to go through some painful moments while this realignment's happening, and it could be a good realignment, it could be a bad realignment, I don't know. But it's, a, it's an interesting realignment that's going on right now. You know, it's also interesting, there's a realignment happening in terms of age. Like, First off, when we talk about the 2024 elections, a lot of people don't even mention Joe Biden, who's since he's the president, he's the obvious potential nominee for 2024. But people are constantly asking about Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, and so on. Joe Biden's like 80 years old. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi and the major the current Democratic majority leader and the current Democratic majority whip are all resigning their leadership positions. They're all respectively. Nancy Pelosi is 82 years old. The leader is 83 years old. The whip is 82 years old. Like all the 80 year olds are leaving their leadership posts and probably eventually leaving, I mean, Congress in the next year or so. So what's going to happen on the Democratic side? Are, are the, is the AOC wing going to take over or will there be younger kind of middle of the road? I don't, I don't want to say Pelosi's totally middle of the road, but she's at least not as, as extreme left. I, I never like the extremes. So AOC is an extreme and Elon Omar is an extreme. Like that group is an extreme. Do you think the AO, the progressive wing will take over of uh, the Democrats or you think that's going to stay kind of quasi middle? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Omar and AOC got less votes in this election than they did in previous elections. So if they're looking at just their own districts, then you would say that they would come back, swing back towards the middle a little bit. Um, whether they do or not, I just, I, I don't know. I think everything kind of comes down to like, uh, I, you know, I think when you're in the minority, which, which the Democrats will be in the House, you're going to see more extremism come on their end because they're going to have a lot, their louder voices and more outrage over the fact that Republicans are blocking legislation or won't, take up legislation or investigating Hunter Biden or they you know, they'll, they'll find outrage that kind of can mask their policy beliefs when they're in the majority, they don't have outrage. So they have to be up front with their policy beliefs. So I, it, th this is what you'll see how, how that unfolds though. I just don't know. 
Yeah, and it's going to be very interesting for 2024. Like, I think the worst outcome is that we have another Trump-Biden race. But, you know, just because A, it's boring, and B, they're 80 years old. Like, everybody's got to relax at some point. Like, why do people still want to be president at the age of 80? I hope when I'm 80, I don't want to be anything. Like, why there's so much ambition at that age when it's an age where you should spend with your grandchildren and focus on, you know, being a mentor to younger people and, and, and so on. So, but let's say 2024, another possible outcome is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California versus Ron DeSantis. Now the Democrats are going to have a problem because if Biden doesn't run, Kamala, of course will run. She's yep. an ambitious woman. Yep. She ran in 2020. Gavin Newsom doesn't want to run against her. They're good friends. He's already said he's not going to run if she runs. So uh, this point, yeah, I don't believe that, but okay. Keep, keep oh, on. so you think he'll run against her? Oh God, I, th he's the most ambitious called politician hands down in the country. All right, so so let, let's say hypothetically then, since I don't know what other Democrats are in the are in the potential running, like what other Democrats are potentially going to run? Oh, well, we talked about this, uh, Buttigieg. I don't think he could win. You just asked me who else would run. Yeah, so Buttigieg. you're right. He's a name. You, that you may see. Then there'll be the outlier candidates. You know, the Tim Ryan's of a couple years ago. There there'll be a bunch of other of those who shakes out in that route and that sort of base i don't know do you think we could have more than a third part uh, more than a two-party system i mean now we're talking about andrew yang tulsi gabbard liz cheney they've all considered independent runs Andrew and, and james aldisher james aldisher is on on the ballot or he's not on the ballot but he's a write-in candidate right. according to the fec um do you think we could have some of these uh you think that we could have a legit third party yeah i think we're as close as we've ever been although you know 1992 perot was pretty legit third-party candidate. I mean, there was, was one point where he was even winning in the polls. He was. He also spent, you know, I don't know, $100 million of his own money. So if you're... 19, 1980, John Anderson yep. versus Reagan and Carter. He got like a decent percentage in the polls. Yeah, he but, didn't win any state. I, I think you're going to have to say find somebody that's willing to put their own money out because otherwise it's just... It's like... um, you you and Let me, let me liken it to the terms you probably know. It's like a a startup company that no one really believes in, but thinks it's a good idea, right? How much yeah. funding is that going to get? There, people are, because it does boil down to money at that level. It does. And so, okay, let's just say then Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis. What's, what's going to, and I know it's very early to say this, but two years is not that far away now. No. Like, oh my people, God. Are, no. people are starting to, yeah. yeah like, I mean, I'm sure DeSantis and Newsom are putting together their organizations now and they're, you know, DeSantis is definitely running all, 100% chance. Ron DeSantis won by a bigger margin in Florida than uh, Gavin Newsom won in the state of California. That's crazy. So that's telling. That's crazy. Yeah, because California is so blue, whereas realistically, Florida has gone back and forth over the decades. It, it is very much a, used to be a purple state, but the, the, the realignment with a good brand being Governor DeSantis that's that's a good brand, right? And that realignment that's happened in the state because of him, plus the people moved here during the pandemic and then went, oh my gosh, this guy actually lets my kids go to school and they don't have to wear masks and I can vacation here and go out to a restaurant. And like people felt that. That's that's a great brand. I mean, that is a great brand. And he's, of course, completely distanced himself from Trump. Right. And now, you know, Trump is already starting to go after him and, and, uh, governor Yunkin in, um, in Virginia as well. It's another one. So, you know, 
uh, I mean, my advice is just stay out of it. You don't engage until they're, you're ready to be an alternative to, to his candidacy, which doesn't have to be right now. But it's going to be interesting to see how that ha- happens. But, um, you know, there's a, we have a really good brand in this party. In, in the Republican Party, and 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 we have a couple really good brands in the party. So it is going to be interesting to see what voters end up doing, rather than what they say in polls. So you know, it, it's it's interesting. Like, um, oh, you know, in the Republicans, what about what about Dan Crenshaw? He used to be such a presence, and I have not heard one peep from him in two years. Yeah, we've talked to this before. Um, he's just fallen off the radar. He's fallen off. Uh, I think he started, he embraced Ukraine and he embraced the world economic forum in some, uh, in some instances. And I think that really turned off a lot of the Republican base on it. Yeah. And so, you know, the other thing is here's one interesting thing. This is the one good thing I would say about forgetting issues aside and just kind of the, the rhetoric of this. Uh, the one interesting thing about Trump's candidacy, even in 2016, is that everyone always says they don't want another politician to be in office. And one thing about Trump and his and and the people he got running, whether you like them or not, um, J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, Blake Masters, none of these people are politicians. And it turns out that <laughs> people actually do want politicians. I think message overrode whether it was a politician or a business person. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, uh, you know, everyone always says, Oh, and people campaign on it for, for hundreds of years, people campaign on, Oh, let's get rid of, let's drain the swamp. Let's get rid of Washington DC. Even Jimmy Carter and the Democrats, he was sort right. of an unknown. Right. He was like a, a, a one term or two term. He was a governor of Georgia that nobody knew about. He won in 1976 beating all of the establishment candidates. Yeah. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of it. Well, Trump is certainly another example on the Republican side. Absolutely. Barack Obama is almost an example. He was really only a senator for two years before he became president or, you know, four years before he became president. And uh, uh, Eisenhower was an example on the Republican side. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, I guess, I, I guess, you know, for 2024, we'll have two governors, but governors in general are not in Washington, D.C. This is why governors traditionally have been elected president more than senators have been. So it'll be interesting to see if that, how that plays out. Yeah. Um, uh, man, it, it's endless fun over the next two years because you're, you know, we're only basically 13, 14 months from, you know, early voting or, or voting in the presidential primary. So, you know, who are you going to vote? Who are you going to not vote for? Who are you going to work for? For uh, are, You're going to, Probably work for some presidential candidates. We will. We'll, you work we'll, for more than we're, one. We're already in discussions. Obviously, I can't discuss that, but we're in discussions with a couple right now. What does it? What What does a campaign manager make, roughly, for a presidential campaign? Well, I wouldn't be a campaign manager. I'd be at a. We'd be an outside media consultant. Yeah. What does a campaign oh. manager make, though? Uh, maybe two fifty. Right, really? They don't they, they don't get extra though for like raising money or percentage of money I mean, raised maybe or anything like win, that. Win, I always had win bonuses in in my contracts, you know, uh, that were pretty lucrative. And, and and you know, the candidate looks at that and goes, "Yeah, what do I have to lose? I'll, I'll have the money if I win." So yeah, I'll pay you a huge bonus. So 
it's kind of how you kind of, you know, triple up or double up. And uh, did you get some good win bonuses in these midterm elections? We got some good win bonuses. Yeah. Look, we, um, we worked on four races that decided the house and that we won all four. Uh, we won, uh, we were involved in Oregon five. It was the only race in the state of Oregon that actually had a Republican win. Uh, it was Lori, <clears throat> excuse me, Lori Chavez dreamer. Um, California 13, there's a guy named John Duarte. He he's up like that 800 votes. We saw we were on the New York 17 race, which was Patrick Mahoney. Do you remember? Did you read about this one? He was the head of the Democratic Campaign Committee. Yeah, yeah. I I was once considering running against him in 2014. Oh, that was that was my district. Okay. And he wasn't from the district. Right. And he was a one. I thought he was going to be a one term guy. Clinton was supporting him, and Clinton was going through like his own Me Too kind of yeah. thing. So I thought I thought he was potentially weak, but. Uh, uh, of course, you know, I didn't, I didn't run. I didn't feel like it, but yeah, well, he, uh, that's the first time in 48 years, the head of the democratic congressional campaign party lost. So that was a pretty big one for us. We also did Johnson Sununu in New Hampshire, which, you know, they had a competitive U S Senate race and all that in the, in the, uh, in the Senate race, the Republican got destroyed, but Sununu won 57 points, 57% of the vote. You know, so look, if the house is, is a three or four vote majority, you know, we worked on probably four, we won four of the, probably the top eight races in all of the U S house races. And we won all four. So we feel really good about what we did in, in the cycle. Uh, we had one bad loss. That would be, uh, we were on the, uh, Laxalt. We were helping on the Laxalt race in Nevada, the U S Senate race. But is that race definitely over? Like, cause I know he's conceded. Going, yeah. But I mean, he lost by, I don't know four or 5,000 out of a million. I mean, it was basically even. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we were pretty, pretty excited about where we were. Well, Phil, thank you for the lowdown on this race. I was interesting how the importance of ballot harvesting and the, the money machine and the distancing from, from Trump, uh, and also your insights into 2024. So, a lot's going to happen between now and, and 2024. I expect you'll you'll come on quite a few times and keep educating us on the on the election process. Anything else you thought that was particularly fascinating or interesting in these midterm elections? No, I would just say the 2024 U.S. Senate races are going to be the most exciting to watch because there are zero Senate incumbent Republicans running in states that Joe Biden won, and mm. there are three senators on the democratic side that trump won in 16 and 20 there's joe manchin in west virginia there's john tester in montana and there's sherrod brown in ohio so there's three if, if it's a 50 to 49 or 51 to 49 or you know whatever it is 51 40 whatever the the senate ends up being after the herschel runoff um there's a really good chance for republicans to win in 2024 but they have to have a they have to have a great candidate on the ballot too, right? And then the Dems have to defend the Arizona Senate race, Senate races in Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Nevada. These are all close states. They're all having defend. These are all defenses. So opportunities for Republicans to pick up the Senate exist. It just depends on what happens in the presidential race as well. Well, 
Bill, again, we'll have you back on with, to talk about those because, again, I'm a betting man. I lost all my bets this time, but I super appreciate you coming on the podcast and the show. And we, we did this one live, so I hope listeners enjoyed it. And uh, good luck in, in everything you do, Democrat and Republican. Thanks, man. Before we go, uh, that's yeah. one question from the YouTube uh, for you. Okay. It's for, for Phillips. So Easy Money asks, does DeSantis have a legitimate shot to beat Trump? And if he does, will the wounds of the primary be too much for the general elections? No. Uh, does he have a chance? Does he have a competitive chance to beat Trump? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. 100%. Would those wounds hurt him against Trump? No. Unless Trump just decides to go nuclear after a primary loss for the rest of the campaign. And if unless, or if he decides to back the person he lost, if he loses to that, if he decides to back DeSantis and support him, it won't hurt him at all. Yeah. What if Trump doesn't um, back DeSantis after a, a tough fought primary in 2020? I mean, there's so many scenarios, though. It's like uh, that could help. DeSantis or that could hurt DeSantis just as well as if Trump endorsed him if he lost to him, right? So many things have to come into play. So do I think DeSantis could win? Yeah, I mean, he's already winning in literally every state right now, but it's so early and you you never want to be the front runner early, right? So the, my advice yeah. to DeSantis would be just don't run yet. Like, wait, you got time. Wait six months and let this thing calm down a little bit. Particularly if you're the governor of Florida, you don't want to be the front runner because Jeb Bush was crushing Trump in 2016 yeah, right. in the polls. Yeah. And then, boom, evaporated. Yep, that's right. So we got plenty of time to figure this out. Um, but I, I, there's no reason to, to be rushed into it right now. Anything else, Jerry? There's one more by James Condell. He asked, what should we do to get James' campaign for president going? First of <laughs> all, James Altucher and I love James Quandell, just, just for the record. He's a, a loyal, good listener. Um, I think I, both of us have been on his podcast. Uh, yeah. What do we need to do? I, I think you got to be, uh, I don't know. I don't know. What would, you, what would your position be? I, what would you, like your number one position be? My number one position would be uh, two things. One is, well, I would want to basically eliminate every government department that's useless. Okay. Like, like the Department of Education. What good have they done? U.S. Uh, education has has declined versus the world every year for the past fifty years. And college, I'm, you know, my daughter's college semester tuition this year is sixty one thousand dollars tuition plus everything else. Just for one half of a year, and what is their and, what is their endowment, right? Because you know yeah, they like have probably, twenty billion, yeah. huh? Twenty billion, right? Exactly. Think about that. I mean, it's insane. And then, and then, even like I, down to the elementary school or kindergarten level, we're we're just declining in all of the math. So you would, scores, you would do a Twitter style cut to the education system, uh, an Elon Musk Twitter cut, not an Elon Musk style, a James style. I tweeted last September tweeted that you need 12 people to run Twitter. And I still believe yeah. that you all, it's, it's not rocket science, Twitter. It's a bas the easiest website in the world. So you could have made 12 people could have made that site. Well, one person made that site, Jack Dorsey, you need about a dozen people to run it. Second, and I'm not just talking about the department of education, like every department, the IRS, I would eliminate the IRS. We make so much money on, on sales. I would figure out other ways to make money with the government than I mean, in, individual income taxes used to be 3% a uh, hundred years ago. 
And the less, again, the less money in government, the more taxes you could generate from the private sector. You, all this government spending, including spending on the IRS, is like a waste of money. So I would focus more on sales taxes, luxury taxes, one-time, you know, wealth, you know, not necessarily a wealth tax, but you know, other types of taxes. These income taxes are crazy that you're taxed at so many levels. When I make money, first I'm taxed on income. Then when I buy something, I'm taxed on everything I buy. Then if I put money into a company to save money, I'm taxed on the dividends. Like ultimately, how many taxes is are taken out of one dollar of every thing you pay? It's in it, you can't you can't run a you can't have a country innovate technology you know, on a technical basis, if all the money goes back to the government, it's impossible. We didn't start having the computer revolution until John F. Kennedy incredibly decreased taxes down from like 90%. So uh, I'd get rid of that. And I'd also stay isolationist. I don't believe in sending 18-year-olds off to war unless you're willing to send the congressmen who vote for it to, to war. So I just do not believe people should, 18-year-olds should, should kill themselves for things they have no understanding of. Uh, so those just very simple issues. And I would eliminate all lobbying in Congress by doing this. You can only vote for an issue if you're in your home district. So no, there should be no incentive to have to go to Washington, D.C. And then it's harder for lobbyists to, to lobby. I like your platform. Uh, when do you, uh, how are you going to raise the money, James? I'm going to call Phil Stutz <laughs> and he's going to find me some super PACs to, to back me. Yeah, and, and you'll get ad spend. So there you go. No, only on Twitter. I'm not doing TV <laughs> advertising because nobody watches TV anymore. Right. So it's only Twitter and and Facebook I'm gonna advertise on. All right. So let's roll. There we go. That's my campaign. <laughs> I like your platform. I think you got to condense it down and have a better answer. But uh, those are three. Really, yeah, you're right. Three really good policies. I like it. I think eliminate the IRS is probably the best one. Yeah. Well, especially since they just hired 87,000 new agents. So I, I think you could win on yeah. that one. And by the way, who's sweating in their pants because of that? That are, you know, not Jeff Bezos. No, he's but got lawyers America. that can find it. It's a small business person. People don't understand that very wealthy people do not pay taxes because they don't make income. Jeff Bezos doesn't make a salary that's taxed and most of his wealth he's never realized, meaning he's never sold the stocks. And you cannot, as opposed to what AOC said, thinks and, and, and Elizabeth Warren, you cannot tax unrealized gains because that's going to cause the stock market to basically crash every tax season. Right. So uh, it, the stock market will never go up again. Well, and what happens in a bad gains. economy? What dividends are you going to have? <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Zero. Zero. So. But all right. Well, Phil, thanks so much. And I look forward to doing this again. It was a lot of fun. And hey, we, I learned we've, we've had amount. a rush of three shows in the last few weeks. Uh, we're all going to take a break from, from, uh, from this for a while. So, but it will heat up again. It will heat up again. I am we'll, rest assured. I'll be back. Thanks again, Phil. See you guys.